Welcome to Interplay. This is Michael Shapiro, your host. I have a conversation in music today with, I would say, a Shapiro by a different mother and father. <laughs> but we're both from New York, and we both have this kind of New York sense of humor. And my dear old friend, Alex Shapiro, thank you for being on Interplay. I am happy to uh, you know, make the Shapiros grow and grow and grow in society here. We have Shapiro squared. Oh my God, we have Shapiro <laughs> this squared. This is a good thing. With a, with a Shapiro-i today. The Shapiro-i. For... <laughs> well, for those of you who want to learn more about Alex Shapiro, I will tell you that she's a unique composer and figure and force in American music. I mean, she's known as a gener genre... <laughs> blind acoustic and electroacoustic composer. She publishes her music by Activist Music, which is a relevant name. And the interesting thing is when I first met you, you were getting performances. But you weren't getting performances like you get performances now, which is, you know, years later, over a decade later. Alex's music is literally played when there are schools and concerts to be had every day. Pre-pandemic, it was every day or multiple times a day. It's really astounding. And I often said to you when we first met each other that a lot of your wind band music is music for use in, in a good sense. The thing that Paul Hindemith was trying to do, don't you think getting music that could be performed in a lot of different places? Yeah, and hopefully, well, in Hindemith's uh, case, it was certainly artfully done. I mean, when you think about all the sonatas he wrote for every instrument, right? Right. Um, you know, yeah. But your music's being played in junior high schools, senior mm -hmm. high schools, colleges, professional wind bands. Speak to this. What are your What's your aim in all of this? I yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, right now behind me, and we'll we'll talk about this a little bit, is a is a very sophisticated four movement symphony for not junior high kids, for uh, you know adults <laughs> to play. Um, but I am a really big believer that professional composers like you and me and all of our friends should be writing just at the same time we're writing virtuosic pieces. We should be writing for absolute beginners and near beginners. We should be giving them wonderful material that will inspire them to keep playing their instruments and furthermore, will give them an affinity to music playing and music making that regardless that most of them are not gonna become professional musicians when they get out of school, they will always care about music. They are our future concert goers. Some of them, of course, are our future educators. Some of them are our future politicians. And so it is so important for society, I think, that people like us provide for the earliest uh, of repertoire and do it creatively because there's too much uncreative early stuff out there in the catalogs. I'll just be frank about that. Well, there's we too we much all study stuff. those piano books. Remember those piano books? Oh, my God. It's amazing that we still play the instruments, right? That's yeah, incredible. And I feel so strongly that kids, especially kids today who are bludgeoned with every media possible and they see everything all the time, right? They're not dumb. Mm -hmm. Even if they can only play five good notes on their instrument, <laughs> they are considerably more sophisticated than that, you know, in terms of where they are in their lives and what they listen to and what they're exposed to. So I think it is just absolutely incumbent on us to give them material 
that is sophisticated within the realm of what they can play. And, you know, I, I have often said the New York Phil has done pieces, I am quite sure, that only have five notes in them, you know, minimalist pieces or whatever. There, I will never believe it when when somebody, when a composer says, oh, writing for young people or beginner music is so hard because all the things they can't do. I don't buy it because my, my attitude is look at all the things that they can do and all the different things that we can do to reach them if we just get outside of the box, you know, and think. Now, I have a secret weapon, which is all this stuff behind me, the fact that most of my pieces are electroacoustic. Let's talk about that because yeah. I find it interesting. In yeah. Paper Cut, there's, which is one of your most played pieces, published by Hal Leonard at this point. No, published by me. Uh, well, sorry, actually activist. published by, I mean, excuse me, no, I, I made a mistake. It's, it's neither. <laughs> it's published by American Composer Forum, Bandquest, and distributed by Hal Leonard. All right, I got it straight. Which is also my distributor for exactly. my Exactly, I know, music. I know, I'm sorry. No, I, I messed up there too. <laughs> mea culpa, mea culpa, but let's just talk about one thing. I do notice that the tracks, the uh, um, electronic tracks, in your pieces can surround sometimes playing that's rather easy for beginner bands to do but you, mm -hmm. they, they have a complicated electric acoustic track going mm -hmm. and the combination creates like an amazing effect which I think is pretty unique to your writing don't you think yeah I think that's well certainly when I'm writing for younger players Here's the balance between the track and the and the, and the uh, instruments. Here are the two situations: right. mature right. players and non-mature players. <laughs> With the non-mature players who are just starting out and figuring out, you know, which end of the instrument to blow through, they've just gotten that far. Right. Uh, with them, the track is something that's going to make them sound better and hopefully, you know, guide their intonation for one thing. Because right. of course they're still developing their amateurs and their strength and all that. Right. It will guide their sense of rhythm. I can put syncopations and other more sophisticated things in the track that I know that they can't quite read yet. While they can still play somewhat straight ahead with a little bit of syncopation, but they're learning the syncopation by hearing it and the whole thing comes together as one. Mm -hmm. uh, they get this cinematic, in the case of something like Paper Cut or whatever, some of these pieces, this or pop song, like Off the Edge is one that sounds kind of like a pop tune. Mm -hmm. um, they get these big, you know, cinematic kind of scope uh, to, to what they're playing with. And I think it makes them a little bit excited about being part of this. Plus, some of the pieces really lend themselves to multimedia and to visuals like Paper Cut. Um, and that makes that gives a whole nother uh, avenue of expression to these kids because you know one of the one of the buzzwords these days uh, is about giving kids agency you know which kind of cracks me up because really in in our day you're there to learn you're there to just listen and take it all in yeah, but shut now up. You know, shut, and up. shut up exactly and, and you know I'm gonna put you in detention if you talk <laughs> now things are very different all these many many years ago years later and um, now you know I think we are in a different era where oh, certainly. certainly being interactive and engaging students, finding ways to make them know that, yeah, you're still the boss, but their voice has worth. Their okay. voice is worthy. I want to talk about process because I find yeah. this interesting. For, for those of us who don't use electronic mm -hmm. sidebars or front bars or whatever you would call it, <laughs> what's your process? Because I know you, you have a, 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 a very detailed background in studying, you know, melody writing, harmony, counterpoint, and like all of us. Mm -hmm. When did you decide to input in your music electronic means and when you're composing electronic tracks, 
Are you simultaneously composing acoustic tracks? And what's the what's the in, uh, what should I say? What is the intuition or the inspiration of of creating that electronic sound? Uh, yeah, I love talking about this. In fact, I'm well, going to use the my, the second part of my it's answer news to, to me. The, tell me. This is good. <laughs> I'm gonna, um, the second part of my answer to your previous question about right. um, you know, when I said it, it's a little different, you know, creating tracks for, for young it. people versus, you know, uh, older people. Right. Um, regarding what you just asked about the process, which I yep. will talk about. When you're writing for older, more mature bands, at that point, the track truly is an additional and equal section in the live ensemble. So you have woodwinds and brass and strings and everybody, you know, everybody's got their own timbre and distinct texture, right? Correct. And Correct. what I create here with the digital audio has its own very distinct texture that is not emulating any of the other sections, any other instrument. It is not there to step on the toes of any of the beauty of the actual live players or instruments. It's there to be yet an additional section. It's like magic, like all these new instruments, anything that I hear in my head, I can create, which is a great tribute to the technology and where it's come from since I started doing you know, electronic music in 1977 when I was 15. And it was just a bunch of blips and blops and bloops. You know, it was, uh, we've come a long way. So yeah, and, Alex, stay with this for a second, but keep the uh -huh. whole thoughts. I, I'm yeah. very curious. I know, so you in a sense have been there for a long period of time in the creation of electronic sounds mm -hmm. as far as how they are created right i mean i remember studying at columbia in the early 70s i'm a little older than you uh with her i forget the name the guy his name was howell i, I think his name was who was a, okay. uh, one of the early leaders in this and of course they had the you know uh Usachevsky and looning had their columbia press princeton lab there and the whole thing but you know they have this mass of machines making these blip sounds exactly and you know if you weren't writing that kind of stuff it didn't appeal to to, to us because we wanted to deal with acoustic sounds right. but you've lived through the whole thing yep. so what what do you use now you, you you hear it now in your head what technology are you using to create what you're hearing in your head like i would hear in my head whatever i hear and then it's written that way for an orchestra. For live instruments. Yeah. And, yeah, all, it's the same as writing for violas and bassoons. You know, it's just yeah. a different yeah, different vehicle for the sound. Well, we both use Sibelius to put down the notes, but what do you mm -hmm. use for your tracks? Well, this is a program behind me called Digital Performer, okay. which uh, is very much for those of you who are familiar with DAWs, digital audio workstations. Yeah. It's a lot like Logic. Uh, Pro Tools right. kind of is all these. And then there are free versions like GarageBand if you have a Mac and Audacity, which is cross-platform and all these. But this is kind of the Ferrari of, of them. And right. as you can see behind me, there's a lot of visual real estate in putting together these big pieces. And one of these monitor, well, they all pivot, but this one is vertical right now because when you're working, you know, as with any score, you want to see all of your uh, lines and mm -hmm. everything having to do with the music at one time okay. because uh, I am writing the sounds most of the time I'm writing the the accompaniment track and the live instruments at the same time very much like sculpting uh, I love this analogy if you were to sculpt a bust and you got your blob of clay and you, know, you work out the neck and you got the blob and then maybe you put out a little nose and then you go down to the jaw, but then you go back to the nose and then up to the forehead and back to the nose, right? Mm -hmm. It's not just let's get the nose perfect and then move on to the jaw. Why? Right. Because everything has to be in relation to everything else. So music and orchestration 
And I think in that sense, it's very much like orchestrating uh, any acoustic piece, any acoustic orchestral work. I do it the same way that you're sculpting it. You you hear the horn is going to come in here. The you know the bassoons are going to do this. The piccolo might do this little bit of color, and then there's a glock. And it's no different you know here except I'm also adding another color, which is you know from the digital audio, and that's going to pick up the slack when I'm looking for a gesture, a timbre, a texture, something that I can't get out of the instruments or a registration subsonic or extremely high. You know the dogs will come running. Uh, <laughs> You know, when cats. I'm looking for something, or the cats, I'm when I'm looking for something that to to um, create, uh, you know, to fill up a certain part. But it's also a dance. It's not like the track has to go all the time any more than musicians go all the time, right? Silence is part of music, and what where it's really different doing these for uh, more sophisticated pieces like this one, is that I can the track really does have its own voice, and then calms down a lot sometimes and lets the the musicians just do their thing and it's more of a conversation Understood. as opposed to with the younger players the track is great for being a guide so it might it's, it's not that it doubles them but it bolsters them a lot while they're playing because okay. they're 12 years old or 15 years old and it's helpful you know? yeah um but it's a different approach to to it but but all in all i guess what excites me so much about this and the way i do it is so it's a seamless blend so that the audiences most of the time can't tell what are live sounds and what are digital sounds. And I do that very intentionally. And I, if the volume is set, it's the track is played at the same volume as the ensemble, orchestra or band or whatever. Once that is there, it's mixed. I mix it to be and design it to be uh, to be able to work in venues. I mean, I think the the um, the trick for us doing this is that you never know what venue you know, the stuff's being played in. Is it an auditorium or is it a gymnasium? <laughs> you know, I mean, you, you're right. dealing right. with a lot of variables in terms of the sound, but ultimately it's all designed so that the sound triangulates from the stage out to the audience. Mm -hmm. You've got the two speakers on the, on the lip of the stage, usually not surround, you know, unfortunately. And then you've got your feathered out, naturally stereo image of a large ensemble, 100 people on stage, whatever you have. Mm -hmm. And then it all goes out to the audience and they get the full effect of it. Okay, now, yep. when you're writing, for example, this piece, are you writing in full score or short score? What do you full do? Full score. I never write short score. I, I always work in the full score. I want to see all the colors in front of me right away. Right away. I, I, yeah. And what I do when I start is actually the first thing I'll do before I start uh, writing, because I know the, the known quantity of the instruments, let's say if it's a symphonic wind band or something, mm -hmm. I know what I got there. Um, but then what I'll do is I spend a couple of weeks just pro before I even start with that programming the uh, digital audio sounds that I want to use, including, you know, using samples that I often make from my phone, um, using samples and, and working with those and figuring out a sound palette because every one of my pieces, I always challenge myself to never do the same thing twice. Mm -hmm. So everyone has it's a different sound right. set um mm -hmm. and because to me it's more interesting artistically to keep challenging myself oh, to grow you know yeah. and yeah. and so i i spend a long time programming an initial set of sounds that i'm going to start off with that i think are going to set the mood for whatever i'm trying to communicate then what happens is that as the music starts to reveal itself about a quarter of the way third of the way through the piece i realize eh, i'm not going to use a third of these sounds you know away they go and as the music reveals itself i have to program new sounds to do what i need them to do musically 
And additionally, one more thing I'll say about the process, because I for just it. think it's so cool. It's And this is why I'm always excited about telling everybody, you too can be a composer. If you've got a phone and a laptop, you, you know, the software is free. It doesn't cost a gazillions of dollars like it did in the 80s when I set up my first studio. And, you know, things have ch changed so much. It's within reach of everybody. But what I do, like I, when I mentioned taking samples, in my pieces, not every one of them, but a lot of them, I work with trains, I work with whales, I work with ping pong balls, I work with rocks, paper, metal bowls, you name it, a ferry, the Washington State Ferry is, is in this piece, um, the, and the amazing sound of the engine, uh, it's got a great syncopation. You name it, to me, everything is musical. What I'll do is I'll take the, a sound, uh, let's say a train sound. I've got a piece called Trains of Thought for, for band, mm -hmm. where I started with those great clusters from the uh, from the train horn going by, and, as well as the crossing bell, which I believe was on a C. And uh, I will pull the pitches from these sounds as you, to use as the source material for the mm. entire piece. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why it can sound organic as opposed to just random train sound and band or and orchestra. Mm. It's um, instead, I like with the whale, I've got a piece that some people know called Beneath, which is the third movement of my symphony, my first symphony for winds called Immersion. And I the whole uh, movement is written around a, a humpback whale song, a soloist. I know. So I love, immersion is my favorite piece of yours. I've told you Thank this in you. the past. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorites too. And this will this sure one thing. is going to be be my next uh, my next favorite, I think. But what I did with the whale, I wrote the whole piece around the whale. I didn't I, I didn't even have to pitch correct the whale. It was whale tempered. So Oof. Oof. <laughs> I had to pay at scale though to get it into the studio. Jeez Louise. In any event <laughs> Immersion Symphony number no. one, basically. Yeah. And yeah. what and what's the name of your newest? This one is called Suspended, and it is uh, four movements. Immersion is three movements. This one's a little bit more. And just very much like Immersion, each movement has been written to not only work very well with each other for a reason, you know, as mm. in classical form, but also they stand alone as separate pieces as well and are going to be published as such as well. And because that, I, I find, is a very wonderful way to get you know, music heard is yes. maybe not everybody has time on their program for a 30 minute piece, wow. but they do have time for a five or a 10 minute piece. Well, and that is so, a, that is a, a topic of much interest to me because I find it to be so, in the, in the so-called professional orchestral world, mm -hmm. not a great thing yeah. uh, that uh, a five minute piece will get perf performed 20 times, but maybe, mm -hmm. but a concerto or symphony will be lucky to get one performance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is not true in the wind band world, which you and I love yeah. because of its interest in new music. I mean, it's That's unbelievable. Right. That's right. Now, talk talk to us, please, about the new symphonic work. What are the four it's, movements? The four movements of Suspended, um, they will give away the kind of the theme. The first movement is called Airborne. The second movement is called Distanced. Right. The third movement is Masked. Uh -huh. And the fourth movement is viral. Now, and, stop. Yes. Because I want to go to the first movement right away. Airborne, yes. Yes. And what is new and different about Airborne? It's only four. Only, there is no track. It, this is, it, the three of the four movements have a track, but Airborne does not. And the reason is because a composer always has to know when to leave well enough alone. And in this Thank case, you. Airborne is a bat out of hell movement. It starts very fast and furious, emphasis on furious. 
It's just screaming, and um, it's chaotic, intentionally chaotic. It's very fast. Quarter equals 160, triplets nonstop, relentless, and um, just like something that might be airborne. And uh, once I was, oh, easily a third of the way through it, I realized there was absolutely no place for a track. It didn't need it. It's thoroughly orchestrated, and, um, you know, I, it's fine. So that one has no track at all. There would be no way to keep a band with the track. And in, I've done in Immersion, the second movement of Immersion, Surface, is also very fast. In 12-8, so kind of a triplet thing too, and um, very, very fast as well. But the reason I could have a track with it is because the nature of the music was that a, a very fluid floating track underneath or soaring above the fast-moving uh, band worked really well. And even if the band were to get off the track a little bit from it, it wouldn't matter. It's very forgiving. In this case, very different kind of music. And this music is really on top of it all the time. And I knew that even if I tried to put in a track, which it didn't need, if I tried to, I'd be asking for disaster. <laughs> because, you know, it, it becomes like a sporting event, right? Like, people are going to place a bet on who's going to end first the band or the track you know it's like who's going to cross the finish line of the double bar first i don't want that with this we want the conductor to survive we want the conductor to survive and not keel over from exhaustion just trying to stress on that so then the the second movement well before you go before you go that whoa whoa whoa. yeah Yeah. i've got your notes here which i find fascinating good Airborne's the sole movement that's purely acoustic with no accompaniment audio soundscape it launches the symphonic symphony upward with a tightly motivic sonata form in an unrelenting, ever-swirling, and disorienting wake-up call, scream with me. Yeah. I have to yeah. say that that's so Alex Shapiro. <laughs> it is. I mean, my God. That, but isn't I, that why we do this, Michael? Isn't that why we compose is to shake people by the shoulders and say, feel this with me. I'm feeling this. I want you to feel it. Well, and but, we're not expecting everybody to feel it, right? But for those who might feel it, it's like we're doing this together. We can never not say that you don't know how to put something across. <laughs> this is absolutely true. Distance is an, an, an anthemic, pensive. Anthemic. Oh, yeah. very, very, very full word. Yeah. Anthemic, pensive unraveling, which begins in bleakness and expands to a raw, poignant wail cry with me yeah now, I, lo- is, I looked at this movement yeah. you just sent this to me today so i haven't had the chance yeah. to hear everything but i looked at this movement which has these very thick yes. almost leaden chords yes. which kind of pull the sound down yes. um into a darkness yes. um so and there, well, I, I look forward to hearing hearing this because the demo isn't half bad, you know, but it'll be performed yeah, hopefully. it's better with in acoustic July. instruments. But it's better with acoustic, which I'll have hopefully COVID willing uh, in July. But um, the distance, what I did, it's these block chords. And as you say, they're very heavy. They're very thick. They're very dense in color and texture. Not and, very rich at all, at least in the, in, the, in the MIDI that I heard. But Alex, you put a lot of change of meter. Seven four, all kinds oh, of stuff. Because it's floating all the time, but and there's these big spaces. There's a lot of distance between these big chords. And what I, and the only way I'm using the track in this case is the track creates this sort of otherworldly ring out of each chord. So the chord goes. They hold it for a measure and a half or whatever at a fairly slow tempo. I forget the marking. And then there's this kind of ghostly ring out that mm. continues for a few more seconds That's before the, the next chord. The, the less vibre. 
Yeah, it's it's the ultimate laissez-vibre for the entire uh, orchestra or band. This piece, by the way, is going to uh, be orchestrated as well. I think it will do very well for orchestra as well as band. Finally, so, uh, I told you to do that with immersion. No, I did that with beneath. Uh, beneath is for I know, orchestra. Too. I know, but yeah. immersion, I've I've told yeah. you, you've got to do. Yeah. Viral ends the work with an energetic, grooved bass rondo. Dance with me. Dance with me and oh, don't but forget wait a masked. Minute. I <laughs> skipped. Masked. I skipped masked. Third movement, masked, is composed to the exact form of a traditional classical minuet and trio waltz. I've got to see you dance to this. Yeah. Though the, the music conjuring a whimsical, if somewhat demented, masked ball... Oh, balls, in this case, bears little connection to that of the 18th century. Laugh with me. Well, that sounds like you. So you're screaming, you're crying, you're laughing, and you're dancing. Yeah. I took the classical symphony, a la Papa Haydn, to heart in terms of the form of classical symphonies is fabulous. There's a reason that there are so many of them. I mean, he alone, what, 106? <laughs> he never tired of it. Uh, I think he wrote 106 of them. Whatever. Uh, it's but, good to be But paid. whatever. Who's counting? <laughs> you know? he, he had an orchestra right there. He could do it every week. Yeah, really. But the, um, the, the I love, I've always loved form. I've always, no matter what kind of music I'm writing, I love a tight motivic development. I love, you know, expounding on things. I like the way form right. works. And Absolutely. I think that no matter what kind of music we're writing, form is glue that holds it together. And uh, I decided, okay, so we'll go for the sonata form, of course, with the first movement. Second, second movement is not so much form-based, but that lyrical slow you know, movement that yep. that offers that, especially in contrast to the Bad Out of Hell opening. Then also, speaking of contrast, I if I kept going with the, the music of the first two movements is deeply bleak. I mean, really angry and bleak. It's it's very difficult it emotionally, is. It is. and it's it is um, it means a great deal to me. I think it's some of my best writing, and I am actually happiest when I'm writing uh, very depressive, melancholy music. That's where I live and breathe, actually. But I realized after I finished the second movement, if I don't, like, lift up <laughs> a little bit, you know, people are going to want to leave just and slit their wrists after this. This is not good. You know, the point of a symphony is to take your audience on, on a journey, on a trip. Yep. And so yep. I realized I have to rise up. So the perfect thing, and then the classicists knew this, the European classicists, that a yeah, minuet and trio, a stately dance. It's a 3-4. It's about quarter equals 84 or something. It's not too fast. And it's a piece within a piece because, you know, you got the ternary form and then the, mm-hmm. and then the trio in the middle of it. It's so much fun. Plus, it's almost like painting by numbers, folks, because once you d- know that you're going to write a minuet and trio, you also know, OK, once I've come up with my A theme, it's going to come back here. Once I've come up with my B, my C, you know, in other words, it's building blocks. You know, well, where also, of go. course, this uh, this morphed itself into the scherzo, which is a big joke. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know. And in, in, in this one definitely is a scherzo joke as well. It's a slow scherzo. It's, not, it's a joke, not a, not a fast scherzo. But this one, I, I use um, ping pong balls, in, thus the masked balls. I use them in a way that don't sound like ping pong balls at all. Wow. Um, I take one of the coolest effects, and percussionists may know this, is to take an inverted symbol, maybe a china symbol that has a really good uh, base, you know, the handle, so it'll balance well, put it on top of a timpani, uh, maybe depress the pedal back and forth while you drop 
a ping pong ball into the symbol and it goes round and round and it's hugely resonant. The other thing that I use in my whole trio section is truly demented. I have, I feature my um, mallet players and I have, um, what do I have? I've got Glock um, and uh, a xylophone and vibes wow. all playing ping pong ball on one note at a time together. So they're creating these chords and this whole melody line with a second Glock playing a ding, ding kind of melody line along. It's, it is, and not only is it cool sounding, as you can imagine, and I add to this in the track, but um, I have, I ask that they're put where the audience can see them as opposed to buried in the back Interesting. Uh, for, for both acoustic reasons, because it's not the loudest sound in the world. And also because I just know the audience could use a good laugh and watching this is going to be very charming, especially if they use colored ping pong balls. This will be really fun. Oh my so there's, God. so there's that. Um, cause you have to lift up. Right. And, and, and then my, the final one is a real bop. Um, I'm finishing it right now. It's called viral. And it is a rondo, so it's a uh, seven-part rondo, A, B, A, C, A, D, A, done. And um, I'm halfway through that and still have to come up with a good D. <laughs> and uh, they all have to contrast, but then it ends, it ends big and really fun. And um, I pull up, you know, I, I pull up the mood. In your program notes, you write, you know my politics are the same as yours. As for the title, Suspended, our lives have been suspended in countless ways. Suspension of daily patterns due to the global coronavirus pandemic. Suspension of social justice and human rights. Suspension of the U.S. government as it was held hostage by a vile cult leader. And treasonous insurrectionists. And the overall suspension of decency as social media amplifies the most base and ugly instincts among people. Surely we can do better I love you for this statement. It is absolutely true because you, like me, have been throughout your life trying to bring the shards that broke at the creation of the world back together again. Mm. So on that note, I want to write, read something else from your program notes when you quote Victor Hugo in our conclusion. Music expresses that which cannot be put into words and that which cannot remain silent. Well, I will say, in my adulation and enjoyment of our friendship all these years, that's certainly true of you. Thank you. Before we end our wonderful conversation on Interplay, Alex Shapiro, I do want to talk to you about um, coming out of this period. Yeah. Um, some of my friends have been talking about a rebooting so how are you going to reboot, Alex? I never unbooted. Um, this has been the busiest year of my life. And I think it's because, to be honest, because of all this behind me, because of my understanding of tech. You know, I've been doing Zooms around the world at the time. They were really Skypes for 10 years. I've been engaging with musicians around the world for 10 years. And so what that meant is that for whatever reason, I understood what this format does badly and what it does well. When the virus hit, it hit um, and closed things down in Washington State first. That's right. And uh, that's right. And so I got a call out of the blue from the director of bands at University of Washington, a great guy named Tim Salzman, who I didn't know, even though he's sort of 100 miles south of me, you know, in sort of my relative backyard. Oh. And he contacted me, he called me up and he said, it's mid-March, I have all these orchestra and band students 
and they have to make it through the end of the semester, through mid-June or something. I don't know what to do with them. Mm -hmm. I, I know that uh, somehow I want to keep them connected to each other. Right. I want to keep them playing their instruments. And somehow, he said, I think composing might be in there somewhere. Tim knew of my reputation with tech and with you know Skyping and Zooming right. and all of that. So he knew I would be a go-to person for this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I thought about it that night. And I came up with a syllabus, multiple pages of lesson plans and ideas for here's what we can do. Because as much as I also know what Zoom does not do well, I know what it does do well. And I decided let's play to the strengths of what we've got because we don't, we're never going to have, have synchronous audio, right? Uh -huh. So forget about that. They're not going to be playing together. Give it up. And it was painful to watch people try to play together at first, not realizing you know, these limitations. I came up with a syllabus that splits these large ensembles into small groups of about six people each. And uh, they are all tasked with coming up with writing a 15-second motif and playing it and recording it on their instrument at mm -hmm. home, mm -hmm. uploading that file, and then downloading all the files of the other five people, let's say, in their team, their sound team, as it's called. Mm -hmm. I give them a drone, an A-flat undulating drone, or it's offered in any key. But let's say they've got this A-flat drone that's kind of interesting to listen to. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have any thirds, so it's not giving away major or minor or anything. It's just floating. And they are tasked with opening up Audacity or any kind of you know, multi-track program, free program, laying in that drone and, and also all the 15-second snippets from right. motifs from their uh, uh, teammates and creating pieces of music with it. This ended up working phenomenally because what can you do with it? You're, you're, you're chopping up these motives, you're repeating them, you're putting them against each other, you're using the plugins to pitch shift them or put them through effects. And the stuff that all these uh, students uh, were doing was phenomenal. Not only did we do it at University of, of, of Washington, UW as it's called, but I've now overseen it with about 30 schools around the country. And the, the creativity from these musicians who never thought they were composers is incredible. And Tim's group takes the cake because what they did was they actually, uh, after this was over, they be made their digital recordings into live performances, videoed them, mm -hmm. worked with the theater and, and dance departments, and came up with six incredible videos that are linked to the uh, E! Ensemble page on my website, as a matter of fact, and you can see it on YouTube. It's The, the amount of creativity has been stunning. So I think the, the moral of the story is everybody is creative, everybody can compose, and by the way, don't let technology be a limitation. Look at what it does well and use that aspect of it, because collaborating online, back and forth, or even in programs like BandLab or Soundtrap, where they can be working online on the, in the, within the same programs, mm -hmm. it's phenomenal what we can do. By the next pandemic, we'll have synchronous, you know, uh, oh, uh, audio, and we'll have, everybody will have a great internet connection, thanks to, you know, the satellites. But right now, we don't have it, so... So that was a great, that was a, a bright spot in why, you know, when you asked me about rebooting, I never unbooted. I never took my boots off because I did that. I wrote a chapter in a book on diversity called, you know, The Horizon Leans Forward, which is a whole nother discussion. No discussion. And I produced a CD of my, of my solo piano well, music played beautifully by Adam Marks. So... Well, I what like a year <laughs> and wrote eight pieces. So it's been a crazy year. Like I'm looking your... forward to a nap. <laughs> I need a nap. <laughs> Alice Shapiro, thank you for joining me on Interplay, Conversations in Music. Thank you, my friend, Michael. My uh, brother from another mother. And father. <laughs> and but, father. <laughs> yeah. Be well out there in San Juan Island in Washington State. Glad you're getting vaccinated. And 
whoever's watching this, get vaccinated. There it is. She loves to show her view. I just want to. I want to end That's by saying. <laughs> I want to end by saying one thing that Alex told me years ago. If you like where you're going on vacation, why not live there? Yeah. And she certainly has done that with her view in San Juan Island. Alex, I just go back to yourself for a second. There you are. Other than Gustav Mahler's summers when he was by the lake in that little, you know, hoichel that he had. <laughs> I don't know of any other composer in the history of the world who's had better views than you. <laughs> so thank you for joining me on Interplay Conversation and Music, Alex Shapiro. Thank you, my friend, Michael. This was great. This was delightful. This is Michael Shapiro for Interplay. Thank you for joining us.